just to echo what Brother Kelton said, you know, we know that if we're trying to find places here on earth, we want to find true north. And then from that, we can find wherever else we need to go. We need to go west. Well, once we know where north is, we can go west. Either that or just wait for the sun to go down and chase it, one or the other. But the fact is that Jesus, God, is our true north. For our lives, for our relationships, for our future, God is our true north. And, and once we find that direction, then we can do everything else that we need to in our lives. This last week, I had a, a really interesting and instructive conversation um, about eschatology. And if you don't know what that means, that's just a big word that means the study of end times. Ology means the study of, esca is a, the, the Greek prefix that talk, or Latin, I guess, about, uh, well, I don't know which one it is. It's a big word, and that's what it means, moving on. <laughs> but anyway, we had this, good, this conversation, as I say, it was a good conversation, and uh, it kind of took me back to the book of Revelation. I haven't studied it in quite a while. Um, it was one of the things I did a thesis on in my college days, but um, it was one of those things that you, you don't study every day. So I went back and I was reading it again and studying it again, and I discovered something that I never had seen before. Now, I looked at it, I read it, I realized it, I guess, in passing, but it was so interesting because if you'll read through the book of the Revelation, you will find between five and eight songs. Now, some people say this one's a song and it's not, or maybe different ones have different opinions. But there are at least five songs mentioned in the book of the Revelation. And you know what's amazing about those? That not one of them is a solo. You read through it, you'll find out there are no solos in the book of the Revelation. Now, there are people who talk by themselves, and there are people that make announcements alone, but when it's a song, it's the 24 elders, or it's the myriad of, you know, multitudes and multitudes, myriads of myriads, angels, and the, the, the ones who've been martyred for their faith. So many of them sing songs. There are no solos in heaven. Now, understand, that's talking about heaven, but I'm here to tell you that that principle transfers into the kingdom time where we live today into the body of Christ because God never called us to be lone ranger followers always out standing by ourselves singing a solo hoping that somebody will listen to us that's sometimes we feel like a voice crying in the wilderness sometimes that's just because we're weird okay but God never called anybody to be a lone ranger Christian. God wants us to be followers in a group. In other words, he puts us together much like a choir so that we can be that great chorus all singing from the same song sheet. And whether you feel like it, whether you realize it, whether you think you have something to offer or something to give, if God added you to a church, if God has put you into a body just like in a family, I'm here to tell you that he has a part for you to play. He has a, if you will, with the choir analogy again, he has a song part for you to sing, and it's up to each one of us, therefore, to be building and helping and playing our part, doing what we can to be about the business of preserving the unity of the body. And we could expand that to say, I want us to be able to discern and protect the unity and the health of the body of Christ. The body of Christ to which God has added us, but then the body of Christ as a whole as well. That's why it's so important that we're able to identify false doctrine. That's why it's so important for us to be able to identify those things that come against us as a church or as the entire body of Christ. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, rather than the book of Mark, to open to the book of Romans. Romans chapter number 14. <clears throat> Paul's great letter here to that church in Rome. Some people have said this is so comprehensive and so instructive, it's like the, the constitution of our faith almost. You could say it that way. 
But Romans chapter number 14, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but we're going to kind of study through the whole chapter very quickly as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning because it's so important. In chapter 14, we're going to find a manual for the health and maintenance of the church. We're going to find a manual of how to get along together. You know, I think I've mentioned this before, but what do you think it would be like if a bunch of porcupines decided to huddle together to get warm? That's what a local church feels like sometimes. Because <laughs> we're all huddling together, but we're kind of poking one another without meaning to. Let's read verse 1, and we'll read three or four verses here. Verse four, this is chapter 14, verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, coming to your word, asking you to teach us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the words that are here Plant them in our hearts that we might be the church you want us to be, that we might discern and preserve the unity of the body of Christ. And help us, Heavenly Father, to always do it in a way that's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And we'll read some more as we go along, but that's, I just wanted to get your feet wet in the idea of what we're, where we're at here in the book of Romans because Paul and the churches to whom he ministered back in the day, they faced the same struggles and problems that we have today. Now understand, can we get the lights turned up a little bit, Mike, do you mind? Mr. Whitaker, can you turn the lights up for me, please? Thank you. Um, we have um, the same struggles and the same problems before us today. And again, yeah, there are some specific differences. For instance, in that day, they, they, they went off and the, the churches had to compete with the Circus Maximus and, 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 and idol worship and, and things like blood sports that they had back in that day. And today, what do we compete with? Well, we, we compete with the Internet and video games and Little League. But it was the same problem, the competition. In that day, they competed with the Gnostics and the Judaizers for the hearts and minds of the people. Well, today, we compete with the cults and the legalists. In that day, they were worried about meat that was sacrificed to idols. That's what most of this chapter is really kind of written around. They were worried about the meat that was sacrificed to pagan idols. What we worry about today is music that sounds too much like rock and roll. Because it's the same struggle, just different details. So let's find a few guidelines here. Paul, by, by the inspiration of Almighty God, has written to us. There, as, as he wrote to that church in Rome, he writes to us, a guideline or a set of guidelines of how we can be one in a body of Christ. The first one, I want you to find there, it's in verses 1 and 2. And it's simply this. Agreement is not required, but acceptance is. Let me, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. That's not the person on the keto diet. It just happens to be the one who says, I can't eat meat because it's against my religion. Okay? Nothing against keto. I probably need it. But the fact is, we have a responsibility as a church to lift up and support others. 
That's one of the reasons God puts us together, to be able to lift up and support one another. Because I can tell you, and this is just a reality of life, if you have more than one person, you're going to have more than one opinion. You know? It's the way it works. If you have more than one person, more than one opinion, you're going to have more than one point of view. Folks, that's healthy. That's normal. That's understandable. If we were all exactly the same, all little cookie cutters of one another, you wouldn't be, well, one of us would be, if, hmm, one of us would be unnecessary if we were all exactly the same. God put us together so that we could have this beautiful, uh, uh, um, uh, moving on. Sometimes the differences, and I understand, I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm a, I'm a Bible believer, I teach this stuff. I understand that sometimes the differences are so fundamental, they're so foundational, that if somebody has a wrong teaching or a wrong opinion, those things are so foundational and important, they have to be confronted, they have to be corrected, they have to even be conquered if it comes to that point. Because there are fundamentals of the faith that are truly non-negotiable. You realize that? There are things we have to agree on. The basics of faith are the things that make a believer a believer. The things that make a Christian a genuine born-againer. The things that make a disciple a growing follower. There are those things, and I could start right there, and I could give you a big old long list and say, here, check these boxes, and if you check these boxes, you and I are brothers in Christ. You and I are sister, brother and sister in Christ. And, and we could do that. Might need to do that. But I'm here to tell you, that's not what Paul's talking about in this passage. And that's not what we need to think about this morning. But the most important word in that first verse there is that word accept. The first word is now. The second word is accept. Accept who? That brother or that sister who may not be quite as far along in their faith journey as you are. You know, somebody who's sitting right next to you may be light years ahead of you in the faith. And the person on the other side may just be going, wow, this is cool. Which one is loved more by Jesus? They're both loved equally by the Lord Jesus. Which one's more important to the Lord? They're both equally important to the Lord. Neither one of them is extra special or under special. They both are members of the body of Christ, and we're called upon by God to accept them. It's not our place to act as judge, jury, and jailer over that weaker brother because they're not doing what we think we ought to do. Look at verse 13, just quickly. Verse, the little, first little bit, verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. See, folks, the idea this morning, in the first point here at least, is to stop tearing down the work of God. God's working in their life. Stop tearing down the work of God that is going on in their life because it's not going on in the area you think it should. You know, there are people who, the day they got saved, they stopped smoking. There are those people who, the day they got saved, they did not stop smoking, but they stopped a whole lot of other bad stuff. Let God work on them in His order and in His time. Don't try to set yourself up as the, well, I see you're still smoking. You couldn't possibly be going to heaven. You don't get to say that. Smoking will not send you to hell. It may make you smell like you've already been there, but that's the second issue. <clears throat> Sorry, I had to throw that in. But if God's at work in some other area of their life you can't see, leave them alone. Cut them some slack. If they need correction, okay, be willing to correct a brother or a sister, but be gentle, be persuasive. You're believing, and you're, you're believing brothers and sisters. They don't need you to be out there acting like you're God's pruning shears, you know, snipping and snapping at one another, trying to fix your faults and failures. What God needs is why God put us together is, is, is to be that supporting lattice I mentioned before. Out in the, uh, in the West Coast, there's this, many of you know about the Redwoods. If you, maybe you've even been to see them. 
the redwoods have this amazing ability to grow tall. You ever seen how tall some of those things are? Two, three, 300 feet tall, some of them. So far around, you can drive a Buick around them. It's crazy how big some of these trees are. And yet what's really amazing about these trees is the, the root-to-height ratio. In Oklahoma, you see a, a tree like one of these uh, evergreens or something. They have a really deep taproot, and their taproot may be as much as, at least as tall as the actual tree, sometimes even more. So you have a one-to-one -one ratio. The redwood trees have a one-to-ten ratio. The height of the tree, is that's, it's 10% of that's underground. So if you have a 10-foot tree, it only has one foot of root system. You have a 100-foot tree, it has 10-foot of root system. You have a 200-foot tree, that's 20 feet of root system. You think, well, that's a lot. Not when you think about the Santa Ana winds coming up that valley, coming up the, into those mountains. If that tree was standing there by itself and its root system was only 10% of its height, guess what would happen? You'd have a flat tree. I mean, the tree, well, yeah, it would be flattened, let me say. So how do they stand? Why are they able to last so long? Why are they maybe some of the oldest things on the planet? that are still alive, originally alive on the planet. What, what is it about? It's the fact that God puts them right next to each other and their root systems intermingle. Underground, they've done the studies. I haven't gone out there and dug it up, but they've told me, okay? And under the ground there, those root systems, though they're very shallow, they intermingle, and so when the wind starts to hit one, it pushes against, it pushes against the roots of both of them so they all can stand like iron against whatever comes. Friend, that's why God puts us together, so we can be like those redwoods. Because when you have a storm in your life, you can depend on me to help hold you up. And when I have a storm in my life, I can depend on you to help hold me up. That's why God puts us together, like that lattice work. Now, it may not always look exactly the way you want it to. It may not always be exactly the way you would druther it, if you had your druthers. Sometimes you just have to deal with not getting your druthers. Like, for instance, when I was in Malawi... They fed me a lot, and I was okay with that because I like to eat. But every time they fed me meat in Malawi, it had bones in it. They fed me chicken, had bones in it. They fed me, I'm not talking about like the, the thing at the middle in, you know, the drumstick. And it's the, I'm talking about somehow they had ground it up, and there was bones in there. They fed me goat, had bones in it. They, I didn't know it was goat till after the fact, by the way. They fed me all these different things, and I ate it, and I... I would rather have not had the bones in it, but you know what? I ate it, and you know what I did? I spit out the bones. Sometimes what happens in a life of a brother, sometimes in a church, we need to just go ahead and, and cut that brother some slack and you know, eat the meat and spit out the bones if you can. I have a kind of a rule of thumb that I live by, and I try to get along with everybody. I don't always get along with everybody, but this is the, the kind of the rule of thumb that I live by. In essentials, unity. In other words, if you're wrong about the virgin birth, if you're wrong about the resurrection of Christ, if you're wrong about God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we're going to talk. And gently I will correct you or die trying. <laughs> but the fact is, in essentials we can have unity, but in the non-essentials, let's have some diversity. It's okay. I can cut you some slack. If you don't believe the same way I do about the big toe of the, the guy in the book of Daniel when he built the big statue and the big toe on the right foot, and you know exactly who that is, and I don't, and I cut me some slack, it's okay. That's a non-essential. I can tell you who it is, but I'm not going to. <clears throat> That's a non-essential. Non essentials unity, non-essentials diversity, but in all things charity. So whether we agree or disagree, let's at least continue to love each other. See, the music of God's family is made even more beautiful when there's a point and a counterpoint. You know, Kelton, you understand, buddy, 
when there's two or three people singing a, a, the same song but on different harmonies and it sounds good and it sounds like a choir and then they hit together and they all sing the same words and they harmonize again. It's so beautiful. That's what God wants us to do as a church, to be that beautiful choir, all singing together, blending our voices as one, accepting one another even when we don't always completely 100% agree. That's the first point. Second point, to discern unity, to hold on, lifting others up and supporting them. The second one is be watchful of pride. Be careful about pride because the number one factor, the number one sin that will divide a church, that will bring disunity, is that same old thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. It's pride. The same thing that brought Satan down, pride. And it's so strange to me. Because here you've got somebody, they're all puffed up. You know, like a toad gets all puffed up. Well, let me tell you what I know. You see somebody who gets all puffed up about what they know. You see somebody who becomes arrogant or they become very prideful because of what they know. That's got to be one of the weirdest and most illogical things in our life. Because, buddy, what do you know that somebody didn't teach you? Lady, what do you know that somebody else didn't teach you? Well, I read it for myself. Who put it in the book? Somebody else wrote the book. Or did you actually write, print, and produce the book yourself? No. God sent us His Word, and we all are students of this Word, and we all, therefore, have we owe it to Him. Just like Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. We have the Word of God. And I had to learn it just like you did. I have no reason to be prideful or arrogant or puffed up. And if you're looking at a fellow believer, somebody maybe across the way from you, say, well, yeah, they can. I'm glad they're here to hear this message. You might be the one that needs to hear it. <clears throat> Don't you remember the day when you were green? Now, some of you, you do remember because you, you, didn't, you thought the epistles were the wives of the apostles. I know who you are. I mean, give them some slack. Give them time to grow up and give them the space to, to, to develop the way God would have them to develop and grow up. And you know what? There's every good chance that their convictions and their conclusions someday will line up with yours. Now, it might not happen. They might have different convictions and conclusions. But listen, it was pride that made the Gnostics the Gnostics. If you don't know what the Gnostics is, that's the people who believe they had secret knowledge. We, we know more than you do, and we sure do pity all you poor people that don't know what we do. But if you were Gnostics, if you just join our group, you could get to know the secret knowledge too. Well, that was pride that made the Gnostic a Gnostic because they knew the secrets. They had the pride of knowledge, but there's also the pride of conduct. It's what made a Pharisee a Pharisee. Well, I do everything right, and too bad you don't. I mean, goodness. <laughs> he looked down his pharisaical nose at those just struggling and just starting out and just beginning to draw near, and they had the pride of conduct. Now, understand, please, please, don't hear me saying that we should abandon our convictions, because I'm not saying that. Convictions, uh, don't abandon your convictions for the sake of unity, because I hope the reason you have the convictions you have is because you've studied it out, prayed it up, and thought it through. If you've settled on something and you know it's true, in fact, verse 5 in this same thing, the last line of verse 5, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. You should have thought it through at least enough to be sure for yourself. That's a conviction. That's 100% fine. I hope that you have that. Your convictions should not change. But Paul is instructing us here that there are going to be times when our conduct will change even when we're right and they're dead wrong and we still love them. As I mentioned before, in all things charity. Because in our world, who are terminally 
weaker brothers. Like it says there in verse 1, except the one who's weak in faith. Some of you know people who they just never seem to get over this place where, you know, that just hurts my heart when you say that. That just hurts my heart. Clint, you ever see somebody get the lip quiver? You know what I'm saying? they'll, They'll get to... That hurts my feelings. I wish you wouldn't do that. That hurts my feelings. And listen, if they're genuinely hurt and you need to deal with that and you need to work with them and you need to, out of grace and out of mercy and out of love, if you need to change for that person, change for that person. A little bit. You know, you can give up. Like That's what Paul's talking about. If you need to give up meat in order to keep that church from being offended, give up meat. It's okay. But what if that same weaker brother, ten? Ten months, ten years later comes and says, you know, that really hurts my heart about something else you're doing. Or they get the lip quiver over something else. And you say, well, okay, well, I guess I can change that too. And then the third time that happens, you've got to start to wonder, are you really that weak or are you just figured out how to manipulate me? Hmm. See, if somebody's been a weaker brother for 20 years, you need to ask yourself a question, are they really a brother? If somebody's been a weaker brother that long and you got to change to suit them, okay, once I can do that. Change to suit them again because I don't want to disappoint them. Okay, maybe so. But the third time, you find out they're controlling your life. And if they don't grow up within a certain amount, I mean, if they're not on the way, you need to ask them that question. Are you really a brother at all? Because there are a lot of people warming pews across this nation today who like being at church, and they like Christian people, and they like churches because they can manipulate everybody. Because all they have to do is start to put a little quiver in their voice. And just say, you know what, that just hurts my heart. And that's not just women. Okay? There are some men, they don't do it with the lip quiver. They do it with a, well, let me tell you, I'm disappointed. Oh, I don't want him mad at me. I don't want him disappointed in me. Be wary, be wary of that perpetual weaker brother. But also beware of the pontificator. And what in the world is a pontificator? That's somebody who acts as if they're speaking from Sinai all the time. Well, I have the final word on that. Oh, do you really? So did you come down with Moses giving him notes as he went? Probably not. They're not speaking from Sinai, the person who always tries to have the last word, because they too will try to control your life. And if you allow them to, they will. And they'll try to say, well, it's because I've got so much more training than you. They're not your Holy Spirit. They might have a greater IQ than you. They're not your daddy. Well, unless they are. And even then, God is your father. Don't let those people control you because of their age or the degrees that they have after their name. Because neither the weaker brother nor the pontificating Pharisee should ever be allowed to control your life. Only Jesus. And that's why the third one of these, I have six. I don't know if I'm going to get through all of them today. But um, the third way to re really be careful and really be aware of the, the, the unity and the health of the body of Christ is to keep Jesus at the center of everything. Keep Christ at the center of everything. Look at verses 7 and 8. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Whether, therefore, whether we die, therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. This is a good place for another one of my rules of thumb. This is one of my favorites. I share this one with Brother Darren. There is a God and you're not Him. 
That's just a rule of thumb to kind of remember as you read through the Bible, as you decide whether or not you should be offended at what somebody else does. When you decide somebody else isn't quite living up to your expectations, remember this rule of thumb. There is a God, and you're not Him. But let me give you the second part of that. There is a judge, and you're also not Him. (laughs) Before Jesus, He will stand or fall, not before you. Not before some church board, not before some some meeting. Jesus, I mean, I'm talking about that brother's Lord, that sister's Lord. Jesus is the only one who has to be pleased with that brother. Now listen to this, this is going to blow your mind. It is possible for a brother or sister to be really right with God. I'm talking about they can be right with God and still drive you crazy. That's a good place for an amen. I know it's not real popular, but it's the truth. They can be right with God and drive you nuts. Because, listen, demanding that someone agree with you over non-essentials or expecting someone to always be living up to your expectations or losing your mind when somebody disagrees with you over some interpretation, that's not a sign of spiritual maturity, folks. That's pride. And the fact is, what's happening is that person is setting themselves up as God in the life of those people around them. Instead, we're supposed to be working together, pulling together, all at the same load. You know, one of my favorite things in the world is to watch a train. Trains are neat. You ever watch a train just go, and you see all these cars full of stuff, and there's maybe two, sometimes just one, sometimes four engines at the beginning of that thing. What's really cool to me is see the one that's backwards, and he's working just as hard as the one's going forward. I love to watch a freight train because... A few powerful engines, they're all pulling together. All of them pulling together can bring an unbelievable amount of freight down the tracks. I mean, you watch one of those things and it goes by and there's just coal car after coal car. A hundred cars full of coal. How many tons is that? I have no idea, but it's a bunch. And that one train carried it along. Maybe it's a, a train load full of automobiles or maybe it's a train, full of, train, train load full of Reeboks or I don't know, whatever, oil. But whatever it's carrying, what makes the train able to succeed is the fact that it stays on the tracks. That's important. You don't want to see a train jump the tracks because that train is powerful, that train is capable, that train is useful, it's, as long as it's on the tracks. Because you just let that train decide to take a dirt road one day. I mean, here it's coming, and this train now, it's got a free will, and it's deciding, you know what? I see that dirt road. I'd like to see what's on the other side of that mountain. I come by here all the time. never been over that mountain. I believe I'll just take a dirt road today. I'm tired of being under control. I'm tired of being locked to these rails. I'm going to take a dirt road today. And he decides, boom, he jumps the track. He's going up the dirt road. For one split second, he's free. And then tragedy and train wreck happens. We, as a body, we as individuals in that body, we are powerful, we are capable, we have great usefulness to the Lord as long as we are under the control and participating with the tracks of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now understand, we can decide, even though we're saved, we can decide one day, you know what, today I just don't feel like living according to the Lordship of Christ. Today I believe I'll just jump the tracks and go up that dirt road. And for one fractured moment, you may think, I'm free. I can go ahead and cuss that person out. I'm free. I can do other things. Just fill in the blank. And for one fractured moment, you may think you're free, but right after that, all mayhem is going to follow. 
and I'm not talking about the dude on the commercial. Because your, your, your life is going to go train wreck just like that train would. Freedom is not freedom unless it is under control. The freedom that Christ gives us is freedom. He said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The other thing that makes a train so capable, so useful, is when all the engines are pulling together at the same load. And sometimes you feel like, well, I'm doing all the work, and then my other engine's just kind of along for the ride, and I understand that feeling. Trust me, I do. There are going to be moments when you feel tired. There are going to be moments when you feel underappreciated. There are going to be moments when you feel like giving up. In that moment, remember the truth of Mark 10.45. Jesus said this in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. The Lord of glory came down from heaven to save our souls, and the way He did it was by being a servant, to the point of dying on the tree. Way back in the year... 1690, the French and the British were having one of their wars. They had lots of wars back in that day. I don't remember which one. French and Indian War, Seven Years' War, won a Hundred Years' War. They had a bunch of wars. They must not have liked each other. Well, this one particular time, the British Admiralty had gotten one of their generals from the Army, General Phipps, and they put him in charge of a small flotilla of ships. It was four ships of the line, 22 other little vessels, little, just a... Just a basically a fleet, and they were sending General Phipps down to Port Royal to destroy the French garrison there and to take over Port Royal. Some of you remember that from the Pirates of the Caribbean. Probably the only way you know where that's at, but it's there. He wins that battle. General Phipps, yay, let's all cheer for him. Let's give him another job now that he's done that. So they sent him up the coast of North America to destroy and, or to attack and to destroy the city of Quebec. And that day, that was uh, the only real French city in, in uh, Canada, and they, what they wanted was to take Canada away from the French. And so they sent General Phipps. I mean, he's ready to go. He's roaring. He's, he's, he's our champion right now. Remember, this is 100 years before Napoleon. This is a long time ago. The ships weren't anything like they are today. So they go all the way up the, the coast of America. They come in the St. Lawrence Seaway, and they're headed for the city of Quebec. And they've promised him a troop ship with a whole bunch of army guys who are going to attack from the land and some extra supplies so that he'll, have all, he'll be able to resupply his ships. Well, he sits there waiting for the other army to get there for a while. And he's peering over there at Quebec City through his little, you know, his telescope thing. That's, that's, that's what that means. He's peering, okay? And he can see all those people just going about their regular lives and doing their little thing. And he sends up one of his little ships every once in a while to check and see if there's anybody there. And, and he, he's, he's kind of getting a little bit impatient because though he was a very capable commander, patience was not in his vocabulary. And so... One day, he just decides, you know what, I'm tired of waiting. And so he moves his ships a little bit closer. It was on the 16th of October. It's going to get cold anyway because they, really, they can't really do this in the wintertime. And so he gets a little bit closer, and he notices on the wall of the city, all along in little alcoves, little, little statues, little icons of the saints. Well, him being a Protestant and them being Catholics, he thinks, you know what I'll do? We'll just shoot those saints off that wall. That's what we'll do. We'll just move on in there, and we'll just, we'll just knock the saints off those walls. And so early in the morning, I said the 16th, on the 16th of October, he sailed in cover of darkness right up close to Quebec City. And he had his gunners, I want you to shoot those saints off the wall. Just blow them away. I don't like those saints up there. And so he, he had his gunners begin to fire. Well, the, 
the, the, the Canadians didn't know that he was even there. The French didn't even know that they were there until they started shooting. And so he's shooting at the saints as hard as he can go, shooting at the saints as hard as they can go. And then very long before the cannons from the, the ground, or the land, started shooting back. Some of the ships started to be seriously damaged, and so Phipps knew he was going to have to sail away. But he couldn't get himself to leave until he had shot down all the saints. Well, he ended up, doesn't tell us in from history whether or not he, all, he got all of the, the statues knocked down or not, but he had to move away and limped away, and all of his ships needed some kind of repair. And for two and a half months, they repaired the ships until the rest of the, the foot soldiers got there in the, in the strongest part of winter to attack Quebec City. And by the way, the, the, the French won. The English had to go back with their tail between their legs. And the reason was this. When the English army got there and said, okay, we're ready to attack. We want you to set up a barrage from the, from the sea, and we'll go around from behind, and we will attack from the land. And General Phipps said, well, I'd be happy to attack from the sea, but I'm out of ammunition. Why was he out of ammunition? Because he had used it all up, taking pot shots at the saints. Why is it that so many churches these days aren't ready to defend themselves against a culture that's attacking is it because we spend all of our time taking pot shots at the saints? See, God didn't put us here to destroy one another. God put us here to sometimes correct one another, sometimes encourage one another, sometimes help purify one another, but never to destroy one another. And if we're spending all of our time, all of our time criticizing and taking pot shots at the saints, I'm here to tell you, we are going to destroy ourselves in the middle of what God's trying to do to build us up. In just a few moments, we're going to go to the, to the Lord's table. And this, this bread that we're about to take and this juice that we're about to take represents the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to dwell on it a great deal while we're having the actual ceremony here in just a moment, this, the actual observance, I should say. But I want you to know, as you hold those elements in your hands... Ask yourself this question, why did Jesus have to die? You know, there's a whole nation around us now. They don't really understand. The vast majority of people around us don't understand why did Jesus have to die. You look at that. When we were showing the Jesus film over in Malawi, one of the things I would say, we'd stop the film, and I'd say, why did Jesus have to go through all this? Why did Jesus have to die? The fact is, Jesus did not have to die. He chose to die. We talk sometimes about the Romans murdering Jesus or the Jews murdering Jesus or it's because of my sin that Jesus... Jesus laid down his life. He said, no man takes my life away from me. I lay it down freely. I lay it down of my own accord because he chose to do that for us. And many of us today, we realize that and we look at that, that, the, the, the juice and we look at the bread and we think, Jesus did this for me so that I could have a relationship with God. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never really begun that relationship with God. Maybe you're here this morning, and you, you've maybe even taken the Lord's Supper before, but you realize suddenly this morning, you know, I think I'm saved. Listen, think I'm saved doesn't cut it. You either are or you're not. You either know or you don't. Well, I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. 99% sure, preacher. Would you like to be 99% sure if you were getting on an airplane, you were 99% sure it was going to be okay? This is far more important than getting on an airplane. This is your eternal life. This is all of that eternity yet to come with the Lord. And so my question to you before we receive the Lord's Supper is not only are we as a family preserving and guarding the body and the unity of the body of Christ, but are you really truly born again? Only you know. 
You say, well, I've been in this church a long time. It's got nothing to do with church membership. Well, I'm a regular giver. It's got nothing to do with giving. What you don't understand, I've, I've even prayed with others to be saved. Even that can be done and you not really know the Lord yourself. I know pastors who preached for years and then realized I've never genuinely surrendered to the Lord Jesus myself. And so my question to you this morning is, are you surrendered? Are you ready yourself? If you died this moment, closed your eyes in death, would you open them to the Lord Jesus as your Savior and as welcoming you into heaven? Or would you open them to the Lord Jesus as your judge saying, depart from me, I never knew you. You can be sure. Oh, brother, I don't think you can be sure. You can be sure. Scripture says, These things I've written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know this morning. If you say, well, I'm pretty sure. Please, let me pray with you before you leave today so you can be genuinely sure because I need to show you from Scripture how you can be saved, not how you can be pretty sure. I'm going to pray and we're going to prepare our, our, to take the Lord's Supper together. But my cry to you today, come on up, Kelton, let's do the invitation time. If you're here and you need to be born again, you need to be saved, you need to change from the Lord who is currently your Lord to the Lord Jesus, I want you to do that this morning before we get to this table, before we get to the place. Maybe you're holding on to a grudge and you need to forgive that person. You need to rededicate your life. Say, Lord, I again surrender this area of my life to you. That can be done today, right before we take this. I'm going to pray. And I want you to spend some time with the Lord and discerning the body of Christ and thinking about have I been one who builds unity or have I been one that tears it down?